0: Welcome to the Classical U podcast. I'm Jesse Hake. I'm the director at Classical U. Classical U is a subsidiary of Classical Academic Press, a curriculum and monograph publishing company. At Classical U, we provide training for teachers and parents interested in learning more about classical education, how to deliver this method in your classrooms, in your homes. I mostly spend time talking with presenters and live learning event guests, and we Look forward to sharing more with you as you tune in. Thank you. Bill Carey, it's great to have you recording with us yeah, today. it's a pleasure. And tomorrow, uh, yeah, I. it's been um, too long since you're up here recording content. You're on Classical U with yep. a number of conversations and lectures with Chris Perrin from the very beginnings of Classical U, I know. Um, So we're delighted to get fresh content in an area uh, that is a big love of yours in mathematics. Yeah. And uh, you have a background uh, in Latin uh, teaching and in uh, mathematics. And uh, I was actually just reminded today your own training is in uh, Latin and humanities background. Um, uh, But you've done uh, computer programming and math, and that's a a love uh, that you have. Um tell us a little about your own educational story and uh you know your uh, some current projects whatever you're comfortable sharing. Yeah, sure, uh, sure. And uh, and then we'll so, jump in.
1: Yeah, so so my degree is um Classics Latin from UVA. I uh, accidentally minored in history and was one course short of accidentally majoring in history. So cl- Classics and history were were my bread and butter in college. Um I uh I took some math classes and the the community, the teaching. It it didn't grab me the way the the classicists and the historians did. Um, So, you know, in my first job interview, um, I'm gonna be teaching hopefully at a classical Christian school. And, uh, you know, they're, they're looking at my resume. They see I've done some math and say, you know, we'd love to hire you for a Latin position. Would you also feel comfortable teaching formal logic? I said, sure. I took formal logic in the philosophy department at UVA fine. And they said, and also calculus. <laughs> and I was what, 21, 22, and it's my first job interview, so I'm not going to say no. So I said, sure, I'll teach calculus. And uh, did not know what I was getting myself into. Um, yeah. So so I taught uh, Latin logic and calculus for five years. How many
0: years ago was, was this that you uh, agreed to teach calculus straight out of uh, Latin and
1: A lot. Um, So so, so I'm actually working on uh, coursework to get a math degree right now. And I I went back to take my first course and it was going to be vector calculus, which was delightful. I had a great professor at our local community college. And he said, I assume all of you took calculus two last semester. Please raise your (laughs) hand if you didn't. And uh, three of us put our hands up. And, you know, he said to the first kid, when did you take it? And he said, I, you know, took a semester off for health reasons, but I took it the semester before that and sort of goes to the second kid and says, when did you take it? And, you know, he says, I took a semester off to deal with some family stuff, but it was the semester before that says to me, when did you take it? And I pause and think for a minute. And I, I think. I think it ended up being 22 years ago, <laughs> you know. So I said, "Well, I think it was 22 years ago, but it might be 21." And he said, "See me after class." <laughs>
0: does and, counting does a uh, you know teaching it for five years count no, at all? No, no. Be... <laughs> I, I mean, it certainly
1: helped. I yeah. yeah. I, I would not. Yeah, teaching math really helped me be prepared to to keep going with the studies. Um, yeah, so I taught calculus for five years, and I I think at the time this was so this was probably about 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Classical Christian education had had Latin pedagogy pretty well figured out. The humanities, rhetoric, the the writing programs were all, you know, kind of well thought through. And then you would look at math and science and there just wasn't anything. Nobody was even talking about Mm
0: -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And...
1: uh, you know, Dorothy Sayers almost treated it like a throwaway in, uh, in recovering the lost <laughs> tools of learning where it's like, well, I guess there's math and that's something to do with logic or <laughs> s- something like that. And These uh,
0: humanities people.
1: Yeah. Um, so I, I became convinced that like, well, we should figure out how to teach math classically. I didn't have any idea what grownups did with math. Um, but one of the parents of one of my students knew that I'd been, that I knew how to, Um, program computers, knew that I was a plausibly competent mathematician, and poached me to come work at their company. Um, Mm -hmm. So I worked for seven years as a geospatial applications engineer in um, kind of doing research and development, but also doing production work, uh, on automated cartography, so I got to do math for like eight hours a day um, mm-hmm. on really interesting, really complicated problems, and and grew. Did a you lot guys?
0: I, I'm remembering some stories. Did you have government contracts? With yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yep, yep. It was for a defense contractor. Yeah, and uh, no, and and it was it was a great place to work. Yeah, um, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about how adults thought about math, which really surprised me, mm-hmm. and that kind of informed um, a second round of my teaching. Yeah, um, and. Uh, and I came back to teach math and science, so ended up doing huh. um, a variety of math classes yep. and chemistry and physics. Yep. And, and really enjoyed that and started to kind of grapple with how do we do this thing classically? And the more I did that, the more I learned, the more I found it's an inexhaustibly deep well to think about and there's a lot for all of us yet to learn about how we, how we teach math and science classically, I think.
0: So. Now, you're one of uh, these students whose lives were uh, eternally shaped. I'm trying to use, you know, exclusively positive language sure, sure. Uh, by being classically educated yourself. So.
1: Well, okay. So I did not actually go to a to a um, classical Christian high school. Okay. Um, I, I went to a broadly secular private high school for its Latin program. Okay. Okay. Um, but I, but I guess, I mean, on the other hand, I actually studied the classics in college and Latin was my jam. Okay. So, so I was sort of classically educated. I, I grew up, um, when I was in fifth grade, I guess, my, my dad's job was to read the bedtime stories. And he read me uh, the Commentarii, Caesar's Gallic Wars, in translation. But if you're a fifth grade <laughs> boy, that's pretty awesome. There's a lot of like <laughs> heroism and stabbing and like mm-hmm. chopping off of limbs and fighting. And it's very exciting. And I really enjoyed that. And said to him, you know, did Caesar write in English? And he said, well, no, he wrote in Latin. And I said, well, why didn't you read it to me in Latin? (laughs) And my father said, well, neither of us knows Latin. Um, (laughs) So we picked up a copy of Jenny's first year Latin and worked through it in the evenings for fun. Got to the end of it.
0: This is fifth grade. Yeah.
1: Got to the end of it and said, oh gosh, that was really hard. Um, So we did it again in sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And then when I, and then I actually went into Latin one. So I did Latin one really three full times and Mm -hmm. I, that was invaluable. Like mm-hmm. everybody should do Latin one a couple of times. It makes everything that comes after it much easier. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and and my dad went on to get his master's and became an adjunct professor at George Mason, um, mm-hmm. teaching Latin, uh, and and I went on to teach Latin in the high school.
0: That was um, a, a formative fifth grade uh, experience. Well, so you, never what, and, uh, yeah, you never know what bit, yeah you never know
1: what comes from the bedtime stories. Like, <laughs> um, That's great. Yeah, yeah, really formative.
0: Great. Uh, So, a little bit of a hint about some of your current projects. Mm -hmm. Your your curriculum writing. Yeah. uh, I I don't know how much you're comfortable. You know, want to share publicly on something that's ongoing. You know, now. But oh man, I can share
1: a lot of my questions and concerns and hopes and dreams and Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to do about them. Um, So one of the things, um, and uh, well, so one of the things that really bothers me is that. It's culturally okay to say you're not a math person in a way that it's maybe not culturally okay to say you're not a reading person, right? Mm -hmm. If you sort of in perfect said, like, oh, reading, I despise that, Mm -hmm. people might think that you, you know, are (laughs) secretly running a gigantic Ponzi scheme of some kind of crypto coin, right? Like, Mm -hmm. people recognize that, yeah, you ought to read. That's part of a good adult life. But if you say, I'm not a math person. Everyone will chime in and say, like, I, yes, I, too, despise mathematics. <laughs> a- and that's mm-hmm. that strikes me as bad for our society. I think mathematics mm-hmm. should be a part of a good adult life.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So to me, the question is, how did that happen?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And how do we undo that? How do we, how do we change the cultural expectations so that people think of math as the sort of thing that can be part of a, a normal grown-up life? Mm-hmm. Um, so part of what I did when I was teaching was try to understand... Why do kids tag out and when do they tag out? And some of what I saw really surprised me. I think the traditional story that gets told is that, you know, sometime around middle school, math gets abstract and some people just aren't abstract thinkers and can't hack it and fall behind and decide mm-hmm. math's not for them. I didn't see that in my students. I saw that there were a lot of actually really quite clever students who were good abstract thinkers who nevertheless decided I'm out, math is not for me. And I was curious about like, okay, well, why? It's got to be something about the math that we're actually teaching. And the more I've tried to figure it out, the more convinced I am that the story we tell in mathematics between say fourth grade and like eighth grade is actually incoherent. Yeah and actively causes students, many clever students, to say, this doesn't make sense and I'm out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's, it's in part a historical story, so.
0: What we're telling is subconsciously, right? I yeah, mean, this, this, yeah, this, it's this, not this, something this we're doing not, on yeah.
1: purpose. Yeah. Um, it, it's something we're doing by accident. Let, let me offer a couple of examples yeah. of, of what I mean. So if you go into a first grade classroom and ask students, what's a number? they all have a pretty clear picture of what a number is. It's the Mm -hmm. result of counting. Mm -hmm. If you count stuff, the thing you get is a number, right? So if you count up sheep and you're like, sheep, 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 you've got five sheep, bam, Mm -hmm. there's a number. That definition of number is actually straight out of Euclid. So in book seven, um, in his second definition, Euclid says, a number is a multitude composed of units. So your units, the sheep, you got a multitude of them, there's five, that's a number. And I think that's a comprehensible definition of number. Well, sometime around fourth grade, all of a sudden there's five and three sixteenths. I don't know what that is, but it's not the result of counting. Mm -hmm. Or at least it's not the result of counting in the way that you've been counting for all those years. And then heaven forfend by the time you're in seventh grade, it turns out that the square root of three is a number. And it's really not obvious that that's the result of counting anything. So, so, so I think we actually have multiple different systems of numbers that we're teaching students, you know, and we start to introduce the second one sometime in third grade, I think. Mm -hmm. And by eighth grade, there's at least three overlapping different systems of numbers and wait for it. We swap between them without telling the students. Mm -hmm. So if I ask, um, so, so one thing I ran into with my seventh graders is let's say I give them an algebra problem. Um, 2x plus 4 equals 8. Essentially, 100% of 7th graders can do that successfully.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Let's say I give them another one. 2x plus 3 equals 8. Algebraically, like if you're thinking at the level of abstraction, Mm -hmm. those are identical.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You're going to subtract a number from both sides and then divide both sides by the same number. Boom. The algebra is the same. Far fewer kids can do the second one Mm -hmm. because it's not using Euclid's theory of number. Mm-hmm. right? The first one, your answer is, I think, four. And the second one, it's uh, five halves, I think. Mm-hmm. So, so one of them is using Euclid's theory of number. The other is using Diophantus's theory of number. That's a big shift for students. And, and we don't really talk them through. We don't say to them like, hey, for this algebra problem, it's Euclid numbers. For this algebra problem, it's Diophantus numbers. Even worse than that, let's say I give you this problem Two kids sit at a table. We need to leave um, three empty seats in the room, and we have oh gosh, now I have to do math in my head. Um, <laughs> the uh, and we have a total of um, eight tables. How many kids? How many kids can sit at the tables? Well, okay. What number system is that in? Is that Euclid's number system? Is that Diophantus's number system? It actually depends on the specific words I use in the specific word problem. Mm -hmm. Some of them were using Euclidean numbers, others were using Diophantine numbers. Mm -hmm. And at no point do we tell the kids like, oh, FYI, sometimes in word problems, you have to pick between these two competing theories of number and like, I'm not gonna tell you which one to use. Good luck, we're all counting on you. Mm -hmm. I I think even if we just said that out loud, Mm -hmm. it would make life easier for
0: a lot of students. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I mean, in that last example, the decision is based on the fact that you can't actually have a uh, fraction of a person. Yeah, you can't have a fraction uh, of a person or yeah. a fraction of a table. Yeah. yeah. So, um. Um, I mean, in, in this, this is one of several things. I mm-hmm. would imagine that you're uh, that would add up to that sum total of what you're originally talking about in terms of a a you know an incomprehensible story that we're subconsciously yeah. telling. Uh, so that math is something that uh, isn't gratifying, doesn't make sense. And yep. then it's okay as adults to say you hate it. In fact, you might even get a pat on the back, Yeah, uh, you know. So, you know, but naming the number systems, uh, that, that's going to be an intimidating concept uh, to teachers. Let it alone is. You know, let alone teachers being willing to say, okay, now I'm intimidated by that, but you've talked yep. me into walking into my second, third, fourth grade classroom to... Well, and, and I think... I think it's something
1: that's got to be done sort of slowly and thoughtfully and carefully. Um, because again, it, so, so it's it's funny. I, I think a lot of the mischief um, comes out of Cambridge in the 1960s where they published a sort of very large document saying, here's how we think everyone should teach mathematics. That's been really influential. That says that, well, and, and I think they're, they say that you should introduce the most advanced number system, the, the real number system that Dedekind worked out in kindergarten and first grade. Mm-hmm. And I think that's crazy town. That's, I mean, I, woo, I, I just don't think that'll work successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we've mostly moved away from it, but there are some um, relics of that Cambridge system still in our classrooms, like number lines. Mm-hmm. Um, when a first grader asks what comes between two and three, they're poking at, at an incoherence in the system of number they've been taught. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we don't do enough to equip teachers to make sense of the fact that there are multiple different systems of number that are all currently in use, and we rotate between them. Mm -hmm. Um, So so I think part of that is we need to do some excavation work, right? I I was, you know, I had no idea that half of Euclid's elements is arithmetic and number theory. I mentally categorized Euclid when I was younger as the geometry guy. Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that Euclid has a pile of arithmetic in him. Um, So I think there's a lot of archeological work that we need to do to figure out how did the ancients think about Um, mathematics and what parts of that broader ancient story are important to continue on with today. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the, the, so here's another example. Um, The Greeks actually had, well, so the Greeks had two entirely different systems of mathematics. They had mathematics with discrete objects and then they had mathematics with continuous objects Mm -hmm. and like never the twain shall meet. It's funny, in Euclid book five, Euclid has some propositions with continuous magnitudes that he repeats verbatim in book seven, only instead of continuous magnitude, it says discrete multitude. Mm -hmm. So even when the ideas are the same, Euclid feels compelled to separate these sort of two strains of mathematics. And we mush them together really early, and maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should have these two worlds of sort of discrete um, number and continuous magnitude and let them live separately in the minds of students until they're a little older.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that too would make the story we're telling a little more coherent.
0: So if I'm trying to um, pick up myself on yeah. some common ground between these examples you're giving and connecting it to your opening you know, yeah. appeal that we're, uh, we're, we're a damaged yeah. society, right? Uh, one, of, one of the ideas I would have, and see if this is right, mm-hmm. it would be um, some of the things that we're doing are, are so abstracted, uh, the relationship between number and mathematics and reality is just not cared for in yeah. any way whatsoever. Yeah. And then um, students are um, finding that there's nothing satisfying or particularly uh, intelligible or compelling in this in the realms of kind of um, beauty, reality, truth, you know, yeah. uh, in mathematics. And they might... Some of them might be capable of playing the game and, you know, uh, sort of taking a scientific quote unquote, you know, path in life or whatnot. But others are just uh, sort of overwhelmed and and burnt by it. Sure. Um, But I'm imagining none of them come out as the kinds of lovers of math as a means of engagement with reality that you're describing and hoping for when you say you have this vision of math being what was the word you used? like a healthy part of every adult life. Sure. That that concept is so foreign. Like I can't even sort of articulate it. It's almost embarrassing to say. Right, like (laughs) Like, in
1: the same way that adults read books and then get together to talk about the books Mm -hmm. in a way that's pleasurable for everyone involved, I think adults should do mathematics and then get together to talk about the mathematics together in a way that everyone says like, yes, this is a fun thing to do on a Friday night. Like we should look at a little diophantus and then chat about it together and play with it and look for patterns. Um, or in the same way that, um, you know, a group of adults might get together and uh, write poetry and share their mm-hmm. poems with each mm-hmm. other, right? Like you should get together and say like, look, I found this really cool equation that I'm playing with. Like, let's talk about how neat this is. That's 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 kind of the vision that you want for people. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we we obscure a lot of that. I, I think when you said playing the game, that's exactly the right set of words. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of how we think about mathematics now is almost an abstract symbol pushing game where you learn these sort of arbitrary rules for how to manipulate arbitrary symbols. And then someone tells you that Well, in passing, if you want to do this particular kind of engineering, you have to be good at these arbitrary symbol passing rules. Mm -hmm. To which a lot of people say like, it appears that I do not want to be an engineer. Like, (laughs) because these arbitrary symbol passing rules just don't seem worth it to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a real, I mean, it's funny, of all the disciplines that we study, mathematics should be the least authoritarian. Because in mathematics, you can really well and truly be convinced of the things that you believe from either first principles or pretty close to it. Um, You don't have to rely on authorities. You can just work it out yourself Mm -hmm. and be convinced. But when we teach mathematics, I think we actually teach it as the most authoritarian of our disciplines Mm -hmm. where either the textbook authors say this theorem is true and therefore you should believe it or I, the teacher, say like, if you want to do these problems, here's the one true method to do it. And, And I think you know who who wants who wants to be on the receiving end of that authority that is, what fun is that right mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. you wouldn't go you wouldn't go to a to a book group to discuss a book if what happened was one person who read the book told everyone the right interpretation like <laughs> obey the right interpretation <laughs> right, that that would not would not be fulfilling in the same way mm-hmm. and i think that's kind of the cultural expectation we set with math
0: mm-hmm. um Who's going to be the smartest one at playing the game? That's right. And, and that's, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: what kind of a, that would be no fun. Well, to like,
1: and, and, and I think the odds of you being the smartest one are actually pretty low yeah. in any given group of people. Yeah. The, you know, there's most groups of people I'm in, I'm not the smartest one at playing the game, and that's... But, but I still think I'm an all right mathematician. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really hard for me to unpack as a teacher was to convince students that they could valuably contribute to a math class if they were not the cleverest mathematician in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and to convince the student who was the cleverest mathematician in the room that their job in the math class wasn't just to tell everyone all the right answers as quickly as they could. That that, that, that was... I, so um, a, a Hungarian mathematician named George Polia says it very nicely, where he says that the teacher has to give their students their fair share of the work. Mm-hmm. That, that you can rob your students of the fun of doing the work by telling them too much. Mm-hmm. And I think too, you know, students can rob each other of the fun of of figuring stuff out and doing the work and, and that sort of play. But if you're in a circumstance where, like, you must do all this work super fast, I, I think we, we design our math classes in a lot of ways to encourage competitiveness rather than collaboration. Mm-hmm. I, I think as a society, we're starting to get better at that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, my my own math education is pretty old at this point, but that's certainly what I experienced. And mm-hmm. and I think we're starting to back away from that some, which is good.
0: Yeah. So I'm a third grade teacher. I'm going to okay. give you two scenarios. All right. Yep. I'm a third grade teacher in one and, and then a, an eighth grade teacher in okay. another, you know, both really kind of similar scenario, but maybe uh, I would I would think there'd be some difference in the answers. Yeah. You know, the typical scenario, I'm a third grade teacher. You know, my principal, head of schools, handed me a curriculum. Yep. I don't have a math background. Yep. I'm listening to this podcast, if yeah. I'm still tuned in. And, you know, I don't know any of the um, names of the different types of numbers from yep. Greek yep. history yep. Yep. that you've talked about. Um, but but I sense something about what you're saying is true, that, you know, that I'm, I don't have a love for, sure. you know, for mathematics and numbers. I'm not going to sit around on a Friday evening with a group of friends and do this, but but, but there's something in me that's, you know, still listening. And, yep. uh, and how do you, uh, like, just at a practical level, is there a resource, a, a little book I could buy um, if this is sort of so far gone, you know, in our society yeah. or, or simple activities that I could do with my students? Alongside of most of the highly, yeah, you know, damaging curriculum that I'm being yeah, required yeah. to no, use. Yeah, yeah. No,
1: I mean it's a really grim picture that I'm painting, <laughs> and, and and I'm of course not a third grade teacher. Like yeah, I, yeah. the youngest I've taught is seventh grade. So so a lot of me is like oh, I don't know what to do. I'm so sorry. Um, this seems bad, <laughs> and, and I fine. don't have a you perfect have, solution yet. That, that's also um, a legitimate so, answer. So I would say. Um, one thing I would push back on is the maybe try getting together with your friends on a Friday and doing some math together. <laughs> now, that's intimidating because if I said, you, you know, imagine that you had never read a book and I said, get together with your friends and read a book on a Friday evening. Like, well, there's a lot of books you could choose where that would be mm-hmm. unsuccessful. So, so I think one of the projects that I'm working on is putting together... um sort of guided paths. That that's actually what I'm here recording is mm-hmm. a if 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 you if you're starting at ground zero,
0: mm-hmm.
1: if you're starting with all I can do is count, how do I access some of this interesting ancient mathematics in a way that's playful and fun? Um, so that's that's kind of what I'm recording here is, is a venue to to try and say like, okay, here's nine weeks that you could walk through with your friends, get together for an hour, play with triangular numbers, play with square numbers, and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that'll at least give you a taste of how you can talk about mathematics with people. Now for your students, right, I don't think you should say like, haha, let me tell you about Diophantine numbers. Like, I, I don't know that that would be successful yet. Um, so if there are any elementary school teachers who want to like get in touch with me, please shoot me an email because I'd love <laughs> to talk to you about how to start to, to reshape those ideas. I, I really, this, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. is kind of my ongoing research is, is how do we make sense of, of these transi- transitions in the number system for, for young people. Um, I, you know There are a couple of ancient texts, Nicomachus is pretty readable and mm-hmm. he talks through the Greek number system. I think actually Euclid book seven is surprisingly readable. Mm-hmm. Like you can just sit down with Euclid book seven and make sense of it without a whole lot of heartache and sorrow. You've got to actually do what Euclid tells you to do. Mm-hmm. When he says, you know, take this number and subtract this number from it, and do, you, you got to follow with him. But, but then, I think it's it's it I, yeah, even you know, even for someone who's not into math, I think they could say, okay, I, I can make some sense of this I can mm-hmm. play with
0: this. So then, let's jump to the eighth grade teacher. yeah, same same dilemma, but this is something you have some background in yourself. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, are there um so both. Uh, let's let's take you up on, you know,, uh, yeah, i I'm buying that our society has a problem, Yeah, I'm lost from where yeah. I'm at right now. Um, and, and I'm gonna try both things, right? So yep. I'm gonna try uh, hanging out with my friends on a Friday night. Yep. And what, what's something we pick up, like what's a book? Is it the Euclid, you know, book so, seven?
1: So Euclid seven is a really good place to start. Like I'll kick in that recommendation out the gate. I think actually Diophantus, he mm-hmm. doesn't get as much love as Euclid among scholars of ancient mathematics. Like he's relegated to the silver age. I think that's a mistake. I think Diophantus is fantastic. And in a weird, in a, like, thing where you read it and you're like, ooh, like, was that on purpose? Diophantus Book 1 covers essentially exactly the algebra that you need to learn in Algebra 1. He doesn't call it what we would call it, but all of the ideas of Algebra 1 are packed into Diophantus Book 1 in these, like, quirky little funny puzzle things where he said, so here's an example of his puzzles. Um... uh, I want you to tell me two numbers that when you add them up, you get a hundred and the difference between them is 40. Like that's mm-hmm. one of his puzzles. Mm-hmm. And then he talks you through like, here's how I Diophantus would solve this um, <laughs> and and walks you through it. Um, one example, that's it. Mm-hmm. But well, okay. What if the numbers add up to 80 and the difference between them is 20? How would you do that? You can look at Diophantus's method
0: mm-hmm. and
1: work kind of from that particular to the general of, of here's how it, would, and, and, if you do that, accidentally, you learn everything you need to know for Algebra 1. Mm-hmm. It's, it was really surprising to me when I started working through Diophantus. Um, so I think those are two ancient sources that are that are worth jumping into. Um, are
0: those um, effective with students as well as with uh so um, adults who want to have fun doing yeah,
1: that, yeah, yeah. So I'm partway through a textbook for pre-algebra, actually, that's built on Euclid Book Seven and Diophantus Book One. Like okay. I'm converting them into seventh-grader textbook form. Um, okay. Seventh graders need more practice and need need some discipline. Um, so one idea, so, so one idea that I picked up from a colleague, Susan Smith, was uh, the idea of a theorem notebook. So students actually, each time you encounter a theorem or a definition, copy it verbatim into your notebook so you have it there ready Mm to go. Um, It's almost
0: like a commonplacing.
1: Yeah, a little bit like a commonplace. Mm -hmm. Um, There's not that many of them. Mm -hmm. Um, In in pre-algebra, you're looking at maybe 30, 35 of them Mm -hmm. um, that you need. And then also, um, uh, Ravi calls it a register, Ravi Jane calls it a register of effects, picking up language from natural philosophers. And essentially, it's a... um, a journal of discussions you've had. Mm-hmm. So in the text that I'm writing, a lot of the questions are get together with your classmates, talk about this thing, come to a consensus, and then write it into your journal and explain why you arrived at the consensus. Mm-hmm. So, so I think some some of those disciplines, some of that scaffolding is really helpful for middle schoolers. Um, with Diophantus, I I bulked it out with an enormous number of particular examples. So Mm -hmm. he would give 140 as the one example for that. And I'd give the kids 10 more. Mm -hmm. And then we would start to generalize. So I'd say, okay, the numbers add up to 100. And the difference between them is X. Like, what can you do? Mm -hmm. Like work it through, work through the pattern. Okay, now the numbers add up to Y. And the difference between them is X. And all of a sudden the kids are doing algebra. Mm
0: -hmm. So it
1: moves them very naturally from doing sort of a, a proto-algebra problem solving into doing what's recognizably modern algebra. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, so from my history degree, I'm, I'm really nervous about retrojecting our ideas onto the past. That's bad. And we shouldn't do that. We should let the ancients be the ancients. Um, so so I, I, I felt like I was uneasy doing that with Diophantus, but he does this weird thing where sometimes he'll say, you know, the given numbers are this and this, and the necessary condition is that the given numbers must be, and then elaborate a bunch of conditions. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, wait, like you just gave me two numbers that meet all those conditions. Why do you have all those conditions there? And I think it's because Diophantus assumes that you, the reader, are going to try it with lots of different numbers and see what happens. Mm-hmm. So so he's aiming at that generality without actually explicitly putting it into the text. Um and I think that that kind of gives us license to take Diophantus and move him in a more more general direction. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it worked really well. This is this a lot of fun. I did that with seventh graders. I did that same text with 10th um, graders as well. And they they loved it. They thought it was a great way to review algebra at the beginning of the year was to rip through 10 or 15 of, of Diophantus's
0: puzzles. Um, so that um, my mind's going in a couple different directions sure. now, which is great. Um, But I want to circle back to uh, the kind of bird's eye view society level problem. Because one of the ways uh, people are going to, well, uh, I would uh, be curious about myself is what about the question with uh, the bird's eye view, kind of Mm the societal problem of you know, a quote-unquote very advanced scientific society needing sure. to just cut to the chase and get a certain kind of computational, you know, analysis skills into the hands of students uh, for whatever pragmatic reason you might throw out there, you know, so they can get a job in the workforce, uh, so that our society can keep up with the Russians if we were to, you sure. know, uh, put this, uh, you know, several decades behind the times. But, um, you know, what kinds of answer would you have to that sort of very basic anxiety that I do think has driven, yeah. you know, a good bit of uh, yeah. how we've gotten off the rails? Um,
1: so, so in my time as a computer programmer doing math, um, I was surprised at the extent to which speed was not the most important attribute in a good mathematician. It was the ability to think synthetically and figure out which mathematical tools to bring to bear on a particular problem. Um, And I think for better or worse, the way we've decided to structure our educational system is that um, everything before college is a very narrow ladder to the derivative and integral calculus, to the exclusion of huge areas of important mathematics. Graph theory turns out to be what you make internets out of, like never touched on in high school. Um, probability and statistics. We're getting some of that now, but not a lot. Um, There are these huge swaths of important mathematics that are just totally absent from our high school curriculum. So so I think we've, in some sense, we've made the tower too narrow and too tall. And if we made the tower a little broader, it's going to get a little shorter. But I think that that'll give um, young people a better foundation and a broader tool set so that when they integrate those more advanced tools in college, if they decide, you know, I do wanna be an engineer, when they, when they integrate those more advanced tools, they'll already have a better foundation of how do I pick the right tool for the job? Um, how do I think about multiple number systems? Um, how do I deal with proof? How do I identify axioms? How do I construct mathematical arguments? Um, I was, uh, so, so it's funny, in in college, the transition to proofs-based courses happens like midway through a math major. Mm-hmm. Um, usually it's real analysis is the first proofs-based course. Yep. I think that's mistimed. I think the first proofs-based course should be pre-algebra.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: the idea that the thing that mathematicians produces arguments, that should, that should be much more widely known. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're doing, you know, quote unquote professional mathematics, your boss is not going to be content if you say the answer is, you know, 17.9. Mm-hmm. He's going to want you to convince him and possibly your customers and certainly the people who are going to get onto your rocket that in fact the answer actually is 17.9, mm-hmm. right? He's going to want you to build something like an argument or a proof. Yeah. So I think the younger we can, well, and we really badly name it. We, we sort of call it showing your work. Mm-hmm. Um which I think, and this is a place where I think classical education actually has a lot to offer, mm-hmm. a lot. If you think of um, the rhetorical triangle, right? Yep. You've got speaker, audience, occasion. That's true in math. Yep. When my 12th grader does an algebra problem, I don't expect them to show steps that I would expect a seventh grader to show yep. because the occasion's different. The audience is different, the speaker's different. So teaching kids that it's not a question of either showing your work or not showing your work. It's a question of producing an argument adapted to the occasion that suits both the speaker and the audience in a way that's convincing. That's what you want your mathematicians doing. Yep. And I think that sort of framework flows naturally from a classical education, right? Like yep. that's that's what you do, it's rhetoric. Yep. Um, w- one of my craziest days at work was having to convince a panel of relatively high ranking Air Force officers that my particular answer to a very intricate math problem was correct.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they said, do you have a PowerPoint? And I said, no, but I have handouts and we're gonna do math together. <laughs> and And I got some funny looks at that. but But by the end of it, I had convinced them that a particular program could do some things and couldn't do other things. Mm-hmm. And if they and if people were trying to sell them a program that did those things, like that's not a real thing that's gonna happen.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was it was argumentation, it was rhetoric. Yeah. Um, just with you know, with instead of quotations from a book, with equations and and numbers from from data. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think we can hit both of those goals. I think we yeah. can have a broad math that's a part that's a meaningful part of people's lives. But where some people say, oh, gosh, like, this is my jam. I want to do a lot of this.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm hearing um, two things, uh, that you would introduce um, a lot of different uh, ways of thinking about numbers you know, uh, and um, ways of thinking in general, more than we actually teach now. But you would do it in a context of um, – Student discussion, students having a very early awareness of the fact that they're um, building arguments mm-hmm. and they're pulling from a very wide toolbox of um, a variety of different uh, kinds of thought categories in order to build their arguments and solve problems. Yeah, And that whole kind of picture all taken together is going to be delightful at a human level. It's going to be something humans love to do with each other in their world, yeah. a way of engaging reality uh, that, that would carry on into adulthood for everyone. That's the hope. Uh, plus actually produce better, uh, you know, engineers, problem yeah. solvers yeah. for yeah. those yeah. who kind of take it up professionally yeah. or vocationally. Yeah. Um, uh,
1: yeah. And and I think right now it's, it's not even that we need to expand sort of the theory of number that we're teaching. We're already teaching it to them. Mm-hmm. We're just teaching it to them without telling them that we're doing that and mm-hmm. without Kind of calling it into their conscious. Um, so I think a lot of it is is taking some of the things that we're already doing and bringing them to the surface, mm-hmm. and a lot of it is, as you say, recasting it as 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 argument, as play, as discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's um, it's funny that there are these two sort of polar opposite positions. There's there's one group of people who say that. You know, in math, there's like the one true way to get to the one true answer. And in the humanities, anybody can say anything and it's all fine. And I want to say like, no, no, neither neither of those is correct, right? Like if you think of math as one of the humanities, there are some answers that are right and there are some answers that are wrong. But like the humanities, there's, there's not... I mean, even in the humanities, it's not the case that anything anybody says is fine, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are interpretations of Pride and Prejudice that are just bad, mm-hmm. and in the same way, there there are, you know approaches to a particular mathematical puzzle that are just bad. But there are, but there are ones that are good, and there are different ones. So so I think we can we can sort of bring bring the the two poles together, you know, and, and look at mathematics as this realm of play of investigation but also a realm where you can definitely know things um, Mm -hmm. and you can know when you know things Mm -hmm. and you can be convinced. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a beauty in that too, of knowing like, wow, I'm really convinced of this. Like I've had the epiphanic moment, like Mm -hmm. this worked. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a lot of
0: fun. Or uh, convincing uh, yourself or someone else in, a, in via a new road, yeah. via a new yep. path. you know, Yeah, th- those are humanly satisfying it is. things.
1: Um As a teacher, there's nothing better than one of your students working through a problem that you've taught 10 or 15 times in a way that you've never seen before and convincing you that it's better than the way you teach it. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm. And that
1: happened to me with some regularity where a student would say, well, I'm going to attack this in this way, and I'd say, like, oh, I don't know that that's going to work. And then, sure, shooting,
0: yeah. yeah,
1: they'd get it to work, yeah, and like, okay, and that
0: has, uh, you know, exciting life application, you know, yeah. to, to kind of pr- pragmatize it uh, down the yeah. road. So, um, I'm going to circle to a uh, asking you to kind of put on a, a reporter, uh, journalist hat for a minute, okay. Uh, I know you've attended a few, um, Events lately in the classical education mm-hmm. world, uh, the Quadrivium. Yep. yep. Uh, summits. What? What's the? Uh, I don't know how much you can. You know who? Who all is excited about this? What are What are people working on? What are you guys talking about?
1: Yes. To To quote Tobias Fiumke, there are dozens of us. Um, <laughs> the uh, no. I, so I, I think it's a small group. I think the classical education movement. Um, skewed pretty heavily towards people with a background in, in the humanities. Mm-hmm. And, and by that, I mean, not math. Like I think math is one of the humanities, but, but not that, you know, for pretty organic reasons, mm-hmm. right? If you're engaging with this stuff, you're probably interested in history and literature and rhetoric and all that. Um, so, so I think the, you know, the, the, it's been a real gradual realization that Wow, maybe, maybe math is an important component of this puzzle as well. Um, so there's a group of us. It's a mixture of some high school teachers, um, some uh, some professors, some interested academics from various and different fields. I guess I don't fit into any of those categories right now. I'm sort of off doing my own thing. Um, g- getting together to try and make sense of, you know, how do we take this majestic legacy of the ancient world, um, mm-hmm. this quadrivium, right? Classical education really focused on the trivium, grammar, logic, and rhetoric,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and hasn't really thought too much about the quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy, how do we take those four things and, and bring them to life in the same way that grammar, logic, and rhetoric are, are vibrant in, in our education right now? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's still, there's a lot of philosophical discussion to have. There's some really gnarly philosophical questions in the quadrivium. Um, I mean, really gnarly. The, we had a, uh, at one of the summits, we had a multi-hour knockdown dragout between the Platonists and the Aristotelians about the <laughs> the nature of number and to what extent number has being mm-hmm. um apart from particulars. and And, I, it's a good philosophical question. um the 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 creative tension between unity and plurality that pervades Greek mathematics, mm-hmm. like that has a lot to say to us. Mm-hmm. So I think we're. You know, we're figuring out that there's some really good and really interesting philosophical questions here, and those philosophical questions shape a lot of how we teach and how we think about this. So we're wrestling with those and starting to write about it, starting to, to sort of think more publicly about it and, and engage with each other. It's really exciting. That's um, great. Especially for me.
0: Um, would there be any other uh, kind of top takeaways that... Uh that could possibly touch, touch the ground for teachers listening in, uh, from any of those conversations?
1: Oh, from any of those conversations, that's really interesting. Um, so, so, so they've been, they've been pretty abstract so far. Um, one big one I'd say is however much attention you're paying to the tension between unity and plurality, you should pay more attention to that. Mm. Like that's there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there that, that we kind of gloss over that shows up in all sorts of surprising ways in mathematics. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's worth thinking about. So, so there's also a tension between the discrete and the continuous. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, do I want to give my thing about measurement? Why not? Okay, so here's <laughs> another takeaway for teachers. Um, this one's actually for science teachers. I don't think you can coherently teach science without understanding the Greek distinction between the discrete and the continuous, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate for me because I really only started to make sense of this like a year or two ago, and I taught a lot of science before that. So apologies to all of my former science <laughs> students. I would have taught you better had the difference between the discrete and the continuous made, made sense to me. Like n- now that I see that, it can't be unseen and it, it would have reshaped how I taught science. So... The Greeks divided the world into things that you could count and -hmm. things that had size, but can't be counted. Mm -hmm. So we would say, there's a flock of sheep. You can count the sheep, but you wouldn't... Okay, you can't count water, right? You can't Mm -hmm. say like, behold, I have seven waters in the corner. Mm -hmm. Like that's not a thing. Water's continuous, it's continuous magnitude. You can't say I'm seven tall, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's not a thing. Well, the Greeks understood that you can convert between the discrete and the continuous. If you have something continuous and you want to make it discrete, you need to choose for it a principle of unity. This comes right out of Euclid 7. Mm -hmm. And a principle of unity we call a? Unit. Unit. (laughs) Um, That had never struck home for me before. So when you measure, what you're doing is you're taking a continuous quantity and converting it to a discrete quantity Mm -hmm. by selecting an appropriate unit. that makes so much more sense of all the measurement that you do in science. Mm-hmm. Step one, recognize that you've got a continuous quantity. Step two, pick a principle of unity. Mm-hmm. And step three, count. Mm-hmm. Um, so so what's lovely is if you want to teach unit conversion, it's not mysterious anymore. Mm-hmm. I have the same continuous quantity. I'm going to pick a different principle of unity and I'm going to recount it. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to get a different number because I've picked a different principle of unity. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So, so, so that all flows from this Greek distinction between discrete and continuous Mm -hmm. that we've mushed together in modern Mm -hmm. mathematics, where, you know, when you say like, well, one of the bugaboos of science teachers is like, do you take off points for leaving out the units
0: Mm -hmm.
1: to a Greek? That would be kind of an incomprehensible question, right? If you've got, if you, if you've got a continuous magnitude and you've converted it into a principle of unity, the unit is a part of it, right? Mm -hmm. If you take that away, now it's nonsense. It it doesn't mean anything anymore. Mm -hmm. So so I think science teachers could could save themselves a lot of heartache and trouble with students being like, oh, why do I have to write the units? Like, why can't I just write the equations? By saying like, look, no, 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 here's what's going on. We've got these continuous quantities. When we measure them, we're converting into discrete quantities, Mm -hmm. and and you've got to do that step explicitly. Because it can be done differently, yep. and if you're not paying attention, different groups do it differently, and then you crash your probe into Mars at ninety thousand miles an hour, and everyone's sad. <laughs> you know th- that all flows from that one Greek philosophical idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, um, you've mentioned a good number of uh, ancient texts that you would recommend as starting yep. points, either for you know um, adults interested or teachers who might want to, particularly at the middle school level. Yeah, try something out with students. Um, are there any contemporary uh, authors? Uh, books that, that you've found helpful, um, in your own journeys, uh, learning to, we're yeah, getting, getting as enthusiastic. Yeah, as you yeah, are. yeah.
1: No, that's a great question. So I guess the question is when you say contemporary, like
0: <laughs> how, contemporary? how contemporary do you more mean? contemporary than Euclid? But. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, so um, I, I think Leonard Euler is is a delightful mathematician. Um, I mispronounced his name; it's E U L E R, and I pronounced it Euler for the longest time. It's it's Euler. Um, he's a delightful mathematician. He he's writing in the 18th century, and he's mm-hmm. a lot of fun and pretty accessible. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think of the more modern stuff. Um, uh, a, a guy named uh, Paul Lockhart wrote an essay called A Mathematician's Lament mm-hmm. that's well worth a read. He he essentially articulates the cultural malaise in a very compelling way mm-hmm. um, and says, you know, essentially we're designing math classes to make kids hate math and we should probably knock that off. Mm-hmm. Um, Uh, whereupon a bunch of people wrote back to him and said like, well, okay, like where's your textbook? How would you do it? (laughs) Um, and he was quiet for some period of years and then emitted two books. One of them called arithmetic, which is very funny and very enjoyable. Like Mm -hmm. arithmetic is delightful. Uh, and measurement, which is also mm. spectacular. It's it's um, a narrative text, you can read it, mm-hmm. but every so often there's a puzzle in it. Mm-hmm. So you've got triangles and squares arranged like this. What's the ratio of their areas? Mm-hmm. And he never answers them.
0: He <laughs> just leaves, he them, just leaves them for there, you to yeah. play
1: with. Um, he's great. Uh, there's a mathematician, uh, Polia, I think I mentioned earlier, wrote a book called How to Solve It, mm-hmm. which really helped me learn how to teach math by discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what convinced me that I was doing far too much of the work in my math classroom. Mm-hmm. And that the most important advice that future me gave past me or past me gave future me, <laughs> I know what I mean. The most important advice that I gave myself was just shut up, shut up. Mm-hmm. You're saying too much, say less. Like if you, th- if you think the students need help with this, just shut up and let them figure it out. Mm-hmm. Shh, shh. Mm-hmm. Um, to the point where every so often I would actually have to leave the classroom to pre- prevent myself from ruining I've, an epiphanic. I've movie. heard
0: you tell some stories just over lunch today. Uh, yeah. And, and in another context as well of uh, undermining your own authority. Yeah. This is, this yes. This is a related purpose. It, right? it is.
1: Right. Right. If, if you want students, uh, students really want you to tell them that they're doing things correctly and right (laughs) instead of convincing themselves. So if you want math not to be this authoritarian discipline as a teacher, you have to sort of weirdly undermine your own authority so the students won't look to you for the answers. Um, (laughs) It's it's a very bizarre rhetorical position to put yourself in because you have to both maintain control of the classroom but not maintain control over the mathematical discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And students tested me out in various ways the longest they ever sat without saying anything was about 25 minutes. Um, <laughs> after which uh, they decided that I was not bluffing and really was not going to tell them how to do it. And then we're like, fine, whatever. We'll talk to each other and figure this out. Mm. Um, the uh, Yeah, so, so I think, you know, Students want to know, can I weasel the teacher into doing the work for me? Mm -hmm. And you have to be really steadfast in not doing that, or you rob them of the joy of figuring it out. Mm -hmm. That was so hard for me, Mm -hmm. uh, especially when they do something in in a kind of novel way. And I see that it's going to work. It's very hard to keep my poker face and not be like, that's really clever. Like, let's do this. Like, no, no, I gotta let them do it. I gotta let them do it. Like, be calm. Don't do anything. Be cool. And I got better at that
0: as I talked. Well, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks Uh, so much. Great to have you and uh, I look forward to your course and sharing that with everyone. Yeah, yeah. All right.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thanks.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Classical U podcast. Please do check out our website, classicalu.com, and our teacher magazine, Altum, we Hope you've enjoyed these conversations with presenters and live learning event hosts with Classical U.